The Boys of Tech with Edwin Herman and Brett King. for joining us for episode 8 of The Boys of Tech. I'm Edwin Herman and introducing my co-host Brett King. Hello. Hello. It's good to have you on board again, Brett. It's good to be here again. It's been a pretty uh, busy week. It's been a hell of a week. I understand you're still without internet. Yep. (laughs) The ongoing trials. (laughs) We'll have to keep our listeners up to date with that one. Um, Just kicking off with our first story today, straight into it, uh, the biggest... Uh, news item this week really is Google introducing its new phone services. It's basically moving into the internet telephony market. Can you tell us a bit about what's going on there, Brett? Yes, it's Google finally announcing what they were going to do after their acquisition of Grand Central, and that is release their new service, Google Voice, which is a major update to what Grand Central did. So is is this really the same as Skype again? Is it just exactly what Skype is doing or is something different? Something completely different. Grand Central's big thing when they were before Google took them over was they gave you one telephone number and that one telephone number was connected to any telephony device that you happen to have. So connected to your Skype number, connected to your cell phone number, connected to your work phone, your home phone. And your friends, your business um, associates would ring one number and it would ring one or any of the associated devices that you had connected to that number. And it would also mean that you would have one voicemail slot. So if anybody rang any of those devices, it would go to one voicemail. So really, it actually relies on having existing standard telephony devices there. Yes. It's, it's not replacing that, is it? No, And it's no. not competing head-on with Skype either. It's basically a fusion of internet te- telephony with existing devices, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the quotes from uh, one of Google's team was that it's not, um, it's not about replacing your phone. It's about allowing your existing phone to work better. So what are some of the features that you're going to get with the service? Well, you're going to get, just like with Skype, you're going to get um, the ability to make domestic calls and international calls through it. Um, Domestic calls will be free, but all of the international calls will require you to set up one of their Google checkout accounts for the billing for it. It's only currently available to previous subscribers to Grand Central, but it shouldn't be long before they open it up for anybody else to subscribe to the service. And the voicemail, isn't there something about um, the yes, announcement yes, that you can turn that into text? Or Yep, yep. The, the voicemail that comes with um, Google Voice allows you to have the voicemail that people have, you know, left for you converted to text and either emailed to you or sent to you as an SMS. And by having an email to you or SMS, it allows you to then use, you know, what Google's well known for, searching to search through um, your voicemails and find a voicemail that you've had previously. And it also saves not only the text ba- the text version of the voicemail, it also saves the voice version of the voicemail. So 
getting past what most people have. If you've got a cell phone, your voicemail probably gets deleted by your um, service provider after a certain number of weeks, and then you don't have that voicemail anymore. True, and I guess if you if you want as well, if the if you doubt the accuracy of it, or you just want to hear the tone of the voice, I guess, and get more information, you know, more out of that, you that that's another reason yep. for you to be able to go back to the audio and actually play it back, right? Indeed, indeed, that, that's great. This is really powerful. This is kind of like taking the whole telephony system that we have today, combining it with the internet, and creating something that's actually usable. Indeed, indeed, and powerful. Yep, something powerful, usable, and should be good should be good when they open it up so that uh, the rest of us can use it now it'll be interesting to see whether whether they release this you know by zone you know north america first and europe and whatnot or or whether it's just going to be the whole world um, all at once because there's nothing more frustrating than seeing these cool new things and only one part of the world can use it yes yes <laughs> and then you end up waiting for it to come down to wherever you are in the in the uh, you know hidden corners of the of the world, indeed. And then when it gets here, it it costs way more than anywhere else. <laughs> yeah, that's always the way. Rumors are that Internet Explorer could be on its way out. Maybe say some. This is the very last iteration, Internet Explorer version eight, that Microsoft is going to work on. Others are saying that it may not be the end of IE completely just maybe the end of IE as we know it and instead it's going to be reborn and rebuilt on a WebKit platform and still others still are saying that well there, there might be a another engine that Microsoft is going to come up with which is not WebKit it's something completely new I think it's code name is Gazelle mm-hmm. and that's what uh, the new Internet Explorer is going to be so no one really knows but something is happening in the Internet Explorer camp indeed indeed rumors everywhere I'm kind of hoping, actually I don't know what I'm hoping for, but whatever it is, I hope it's going to be a nice compliant browser. Indeed. <laughs> Something better than Internet Explorer's um, current IE um, rendering engine, yeah, which oh, has it's, so many it's issues. Awful. You know, I was, in fact, I was coding a website just not long ago, and oh, the hacks and CSS you need to go through to get IE to render properly, <laughs> yes. it's, oh, it's, it, it's really painful. What do you think the likelihood, though, is of the the first version of the rumor being true? That is Microsoft killing IE completely. That's it. No more IE. You're going to go Firefox or something else. Is that likely? Because I don't think so. It really doesn't sound like Microsoft. Microsoft enter markets. They don't leave markets certainly not when they got a, a majority a, indeed yeah, certainly when, sense, when certainly when they have not when they've got such a huge foothold yeah no it doesn't doesn't make sense to me as well uh, I'm putting my money on the fact that it's going to be in fact I'll tell you what uh, my money is on Gazelle the new engine I don't reckon Microsoft have got the guts to go with WebKit uh, and I don't think they've got I think it's it'll be a sort of um I, I, I can't see them doing it. I, my no, money's on Gazelle. No. Yes, yes. I'd put my money on Gazelle as well. Why else would they have started developing a new rendering engine with a code name already? Well. <laughs> Unless it is all made up rumor, it's um, there might be some truth to it. And why would they go with something if they've already started developing, yeah. started looking at something else? Yeah, I, but uh, you know, I guess in a way, it's it's good news for especially for developers because, all, having said this, IE eight is supposed to be quite uh, reasonably well standards compliant, but as we know, the history um, behind IE hasn't been particularly good in terms of being able to adhere to standards and no, no, um, they, it, 
They kind of dug their own hole with that one. They did. <laughs> Doing what? Well, admittedly, Mozilla did the same thing. <laughs> Lol, let's take these web standards and, oh, we can do some other stuff. Let's let's give our own code and put our own oh, code Net- into the internet. Netscape, was it? Yeah, yeah, Netscape. Netscape. Yeah. That's right. So, yeah, <laughs> they, yeah both, they did. They, yeah. And Internet Explorer dug their hole <laughs> in a big way. And then since then, every single iteration of Internet Explorer since they did that has been trying to cover up yep. and make yep. up for those mistakes. Yep, absolutely. Like, as you said, IE8 is supposed to be quite um, standards compliant, but then IE7 has also got quite a bit of standards compliant, but it's got multiple modes. It's got its backwards compatible mode, which allows it to work with all of the websites which were built with all the hacks and working around the bugs and stuff in the previous versions of IE. But then it's got a standards compliant mode, where if you view a website built for an old IE, it breaks just like it does on any other web browser. Um, well, I, you know, I think if, if, if all the browsers out there, or at least all the popular ones out there, are fully or close to fully standards compliant, that's a great thing, I think. That is definitely a great thing. And then, you know, it makes life so much easier as a web developer as well. You don't have to work around. And to be honest, the only reason when I code websites that I sort of work around the, you know these little quirks and in Internet Explorer's rendering uh, techniques is simply because it's such a dominant browser. Yep. If it was like Opera at something like 0.9%, I actually probably wouldn't bother if my code is still compliant and say, well, yeah. too bad. But, you know, I mean, at 70-something percent, it's... Mm, know, mm. It, it will be interesting, though, for... Um It'll either be a boon or <laughs> a big headache um, when we come to the fact that there are so many things which are written for IE, the old versions of IE, full of hacks, full of ActiveX <laughs> rich internet applications, for instance, which they're not really forwards compatible and they still exist and are quite utilized by a large segment, especially on intranets it's yeah <laughs> well, what's going to happen with them do you know what i suspect i suspect that there are a lot of web coders out there that actually don't know the standards and they hack their way through this you know coding websites based solely on internet explorer on their desktop and they load it up they don't actually know css standards they don't mm. they probably don't even know they exist i'm not talking about all web developers but i think there's a there's a, a chunk of the market out there that really don't know that html and css standards exist and what they are and i think those people are going to struggle when it's time to write compliant code indeed those would be the um, web developers using front page or word to save <laughs> yeah. as html <laughs> <laughs> yes. yeah those ones <laughs> Alrighty, so that's Internet Explorer. Um, the other big story out there is Eminem's former producers are claiming that they should that Eminem should be receiving more royalties from iTunes. Now, Brett, you've got some information on that story. What's 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 actually happening around the space? Well, what it is is that Eminem's former production company sued Universal Music over this issue. The the fact that they said that we should be getting more royalties um, from the online sale of music and what their claim was was that it wasn't distribution of cds because distribution of cds um 
only gets a smaller percentage royalty, but if it's licensing of music, licensing of use, then it's a much, much greater um, percentage of that money is paid to the artist as royalties. And so they were claiming that by Universal signing an agreement and giving iTunes the ability to provide the the music um, digitally, they were giving licenses for the use of it. And so each and every one of those downloads was a license for the use of the music. And so they should be getting a much larger royalty. Universal Music, obviously, was claiming that no, it's not licensing a music. It's exactly the same as a CD store. iTunes is the CD store. We have given them the CDs and iTunes is selling the CDs to its users. And so it's the smaller royalty amount. And so it finally went to court last week. And the ruling was that digital downloads will be classed as distribution so incur the smaller amount but the funny part of this is it's one of the things which makes the internet and computers and everything electronic so gray is that when you think about it universal music provided a digital file to itunes itunes then provides copies of that digital file so really itunes is kind of creating their own CDs in, you know, finger quotes, um, and distributing those CDs. So it's part of that whole gray area. I'm fully backing the the jury decision. I think they did <laughs> something smart for once. Um, coming down that this is a this is um, digital distribution is the same as CD distribution and should be done the same way. It's not licensing of music, but it does come into that whole gray area of depending on how you look at it, you can call it an apple or an orange. <laughs> yes, you can definitely look at that both ways. You know, when I was looking at the story, I was sort of umming and ahhing and flip-flopping as to, well, is iTunes, as you said, you know, can it be looked at as li- licensing? Because Apple effectively are taking that track and, you know, basically forming their own little release of it and if you like mm. with some DRM well actually no DRM's now gone but you know with some encoding and little bits inside there uh, and releasing that to its people so it's kind of like licensing but then on the other hand you can also just think well it's no different to a CD store it's just online um, it, it's it's a difficult one but I think with the way the jury decision went I think it's what it's going to stop is a whole heap of similar cases coming up so they're basically you know, nip that one in the bud, and yeah, you know all the other producers out there, and you know, and music makers and and whatnot are not going to be really able to to claim the same thing because of this precedent that is now set. That it's no, it is just an online CD store. Indeed, indeed, it is quite interesting because it does close one of the possible revenue-making things for the music studios themselves. This one, because if they had. If it had come by that it was licensing it, then they would redeal, rejig their deals to have a larger proportion of it. But it's yeah. Uh, yes, actually, they probably uh, yeah. They, well, that's true. Actually, they probably would. They'd, mm. they'd, yeah, they'd be in the interest to do that. Yeah, yeah, but uh, it, it's come down on a good side for once. In a grey area. Yep. <laughs> Which are the hardest. Which uh, the internet is full of and it's why we love it. Nothing's black and white. Yep. Makes it interesting, as you said. Hey, did you know the latest statistic out shows that social sites are now more popular in terms of internet use than email? Doesn't surprise me at all. Doesn't surprise me at all. 
Well, I guess we had to see it coming, um, you know, but up until now, in fact, probably from day one, email was it. Email was king. Even... Well, email got knocked off its pedestal um, a number of years ago by instant messaging in, in a, a poll that came up uh, quite a number of years ago when instant messaging was at its at its peak. Uh, it was <laughs> the big news that email got knocked off its thing by instant messaging. Now it's the social networking sites, which are another one of those amalgamations. They contain the instant messaging functionality and email and bulletin board and all that sort of stuff. So it's, uh, it doesn't surprise me at all. I, I, I do wonder whether the, the whole social site thing is just, if you like, a fad as instant messaging was when ICQ first started. And I mean, people still use it, but it's not like this great new wondrous thing. So, and what is it going to tail off, I wonder? And I, the whole social networking thing is a little bit odd. It is. It is indeed. It it could very well, or it could embrace itself, embrace its possibilities, and continue to grow. So social networking sites have a lot of possibilities, and places like Facebook are uh, taking advantage of a lot of those things with their ability to provide marketing statistics, target audiences, find different people, all of the different things, provide applications, it's yeah depending on how they how they embrace what they are and define what they are is will determine whether or not they stay or whether or not it passes <laughs> well as you as you know you've known me for a while Brett I've kept right away from Facebook I've said no to Facebook still today I do not have a Facebook account you can try and find me online you will not find me on Facebook <laughs> but I have to admit I have been Twittering yes oh, yes <laughs> the, the thing that I've kept away from <laughs> Oh, it's, it's very addictive. But um, look, you know, I tell you one thing, though. I don't spend a lot of time Twittering. It's more like, ah, oh, something cool just happened or, oh, this is a nice thought that I might share and I'll just go and Twitter it. And I'll, I don't spend hours there at all. In fact, I spend very little time on Twitter itself. Yeah, so you're not one of the people who, Twitter, I have woken up. Twitter, <laughs> no. I've put my pants on. Twitter, <laughs> well, I've had my morning coffee and I'm on my way to work. Well, you know what? There are people that have decided to follow me and so I'll follow them in return turn and I quickly realize that they are one of these people that you know twitters everything they do and I just unfollow them again because I don't want to see every time they you know oh, I've picked Indeed. up a pen I'm writing it it's like go away you know? <laughs> yes. I, I turn them off I, I don't follow them anymore <laughs> right new scientist is reporting that zombie cell phone networks might be coming so what they're saying here is just like on the internet with PCs. Basically, there are a whole heap of botnets out there which are used to send out spam. And of course, botnets are formed by you know the uh, malware that, that gets installed on people's computers without them really knowing. You get mum and dad yep. users out there that, that click on something and suddenly their computer is really a bot, uh, part of a botnet. Indeed, you click on any random thing. Yeah, and exactly. And now the claim is that, hang on, what's going to come next is... Cell phone botnets. Cell phones really are just tiny computers, aren't tiny they? Tiny computers, yeah. And so why can't they be used as or made into botnets via malware? They can. Yes, yes, they can. Um, as the, the New Scientist article you were pointing out um, mentions that uh, a bunch of cell phones have already been targeted by a, a worm which doesn't do more, much more at the moment than send out a message to all of the people in your contacts list asking them to go to a site. But it's, yeah, (laughs) 
not not much of a leap from there no. to um, installing something which loads on your cell phone and stays um, in the running in the background, allowing it to be taken over to do oh who knows nobody wants to think about denial of service attacks on telephone lines oh man look i'd hate to see some of the data usage bills you know on these mobile plans mm. you know if, if you're part of a botnet and and not know it and your machine is constantly sending out traffic yeah. that's going to cost you megabucks yeah it's going to cost potentially cost you megabucks and it could potentially do a lot of damage to whatever it is that has been targeted by all of these calls who who wants <laughs> who wants to see um half a million cell phones all ringing one phone number at the same time <laughs> yeah probably an 0900 number and <laughs> indeed you know what we'll probably see then we'll probably see uh, sofos and semantic antivirus and all the rest of them for <laughs> for iphone for symbian for oh, android no oh, indeed it would not surprise me at all Quite a number of years ago, I ventured into the handheld PDA market, and one of the first things I got from that was an offering by Symantec, which was an antivirus for your PDA. What was the uh, OS? Was it Windows Mobile or was it something else? Palm OS. Palm OS. Oh, that's interesting. So they're already producing products. So they're for already, these. already producing antivirus products for for um, PDAs, but nothing for a cell phone yet. But it, yeah, now we're seeing more smartphones, which is those amalgamations of the PDA yeah. and the cell phone capability. Then that's when you start to get the, the the potential for these these zombie nets of um, cell phones. Maybe it's time to buy shares in these antivirus companies. <laughs> Maybe I'll double their sales very quickly, which would be good in the current economic environment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now would be a good time. Another story uh, carried by a new scientist is that this is really neat. The next step in fighting movie piracy, this is uh, basically a, a tool targeted against those that sit in the movie theatres with a little handy cam and film the, the movie as it plays. Mm-hmm. What they've done is they're now building in digital watermarks into the audio, which when played back, you can work out exactly where in that cinema the person or the recording was made. So that's an example of a really smart use of technology. I think this is really neat. It is is indeed really neat. The interesting thing will be how they're going to work out what cinema it is that um, the cam was filmed in. Because without that, they can't do any of the other stuff because they don't know the audio setup of the... They need to know the audio setup of the cinema that the movie was played in. Once they've got that, they can then pinpoint where in that cinema the person was sitting. But first they need to know what cinema it was. So unless they put some individual marking, watermarks, you know, digital watermarks into the movies for each cinema, they're not going to know, unless, you know, generally not going to know what cinema it was taken in. And would they know the date and time as well? Or I suppose they could watermark all that in, couldn't they? Yeah. Or on the fly? They could. Well, or well could would they? they have to render that... Would that need to be something that was imprinted in it but, uh, as the, the film was sent out to them? Or, or could it be superimposed. Mm. So, yeah, or is it something that um, comes on a, you know, um, something that the cinema themselves put in at the front? Whatever Who it, knows? Whatever <laughs> it is, I think it's really great. I it? think it's yeah. a brilliant... Yeah. It's, it's thinking That's outside smart. the box. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it really is. But um, the other thing that people are raised about this is even if you have worked out when it was taken, which cinema, which particular, you know, theatre, 
you still really don't know who that person was unless you've got allocated seats and record names and possibly take photos at the at the time of ticket sale. Exactly. But what it can allow you to do, and well, nobody wants that. Nobody wants the the privacy invasion of the other things. Except you know, some people might want that privacy invasion. But I, for one, don't like giving up privacy. But what they can do is if they find a number of releases that are coming from the same cinema, from the same general seating, they know that they should be keeping an eye on new releases, new release movies Ah, in that area. So they can have somebody come in and stand, you know, in the seclusion, in the dark as the movie's rolling, watching that particular area of the cinema to see if they can catch someone with a videotape. It gives them something to target. Something to work with. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where I see this, you know, really paying off. This is smart stuff. It is. iTunes gift card algorithm has been hacked. So when you buy an iTunes gift card, you're basically issued with a little serial number, a code number. You punch that into iTunes and you get your credit just like that. Now, how does it know how much credit to give? Well, there's a little secret algorithm that works them out. That way Apple don't have to basically generate millions of cards store them in a database and take off credit as they <laughs> yeah, use indeed. it's just really an algorithm now that's been hacked and you can now buy $200 iTunes gift card vouchers not real ones of course but you know they'll give you the, the code to use for as little as 2 or $3 <laughs> so what's iTunes what's Apple going to do now now that, now that it's been hacked well obviously they're going to change it aren't they <laughs> they're going to change their algorithm but yeah, there's been some discussion about how are they going to do that? How about for all of the people who've already bought uh, legitimately one of those codes and it's maybe one of the hard copies because you can go to an Apple store and buy an actual physical card which has the code on it. They'll have to reprint all those ones. And what about the people who've bought those gift cards? How are they going to be able to prove that they've got a legitimate one? But I'm sure Apple will come up with something. And in fact, one of the first things they have done is in the United States, you can no longer buy an Apple gift voucher for the $200 iTunes card because the web page for it is currently undergoing maintenance. Ah, so, so you know what that means, don't you? Yeah. We're changing our algorithm. We're changing our algorithm. <laughs> well, I guess that's what they have to do. But, yeah, you know, maybe if they, the hackers had come up with, a, you know, the algorithm to generate $20 cards, I mean, come on, it'll be less obvious. Who really buys 200 bucks worth of iTunes? I mean, <laughs> they probably noticed all these $200 iTunes credits coming up and thought, uh-oh, that doesn't look right. Uh, that, I mean, <laughs> and the fact that the gift cards were being sold on, on um, eBay. Well, for much less, <laughs> yeah. And on um, the China's variant of eBay. <laughs> kind yeah, of gives it, gives it away. away. <laughs> it kind of does. <laughs> when you see a $200 voucher being sold for $2.60, well, that's true. you know that uh, there's probably something <laughs> dodgy behind that. Yeah, just, just, a, just a hunch, right? Yeah, just a hunch. Analysts are saying that the model for selling music in the future will no longer be a per-track purchase. It's going to be a subscription-based model. So the idea is you pay a monthly fee to access the music you want and you can listen to that music so long as you're paying your subs. They reckon that's the way music is going to go. Would that be something that... (laughs) You'd go for Brett? Mm, no, no, not really. It, it's not an idea. In this particular situation, it's not something I'd really generally sign up for. If I've got a piece of music that I, I'd like to listen to, I don't want to be able to listen to it now. And then in a month's time when I've decided I can't 
you know, I don't want to pay um, the whatever subscription it is anymore that I can suddenly no longer listen to the music that I downloaded. I like to be able to go, I like this song. I like it now. I will probably like it in a month. I may like it in five years time. I would like to be able to listen to it now <laughs> in a month and in five years time. Yeah, well, that's true. If you're subs- if you're bound to subscriptions and you change your mind, what's going to happen? Does it mean you can't listen to that music? That that would not be very good. No, wouldn't at all. And the other thing is, what if this the the provider goes bust? What yep. if they disappear? Do you, do you still have? Obviously, there has to be some DRM in there to determine whether or not you're paying your subs, and therefore whether you can listen to that music or not. So, if you can't get past that DRM because they don't uh, exist anymore. Does that mean you're locked out of your music? I'm not so sure this is yeah. going to be the model for the future. No, I don't think it's the model for the future at all, at least not in this situation. It's the exact same thing as those, you know, the the CDs and DVDs they were trying to do at one point where you could buy them in a dairy and it would be like a one-use DVD or a one-use something where you could buy the DVD, watch the movie, and then in a couple of days the DVD would no longer oh, work. Oh, that's right, yeah. It's... Yeah, it'd be the same situation. That didn't when really I, take off, did it? No, it didn't really take off, and I think this will suffer the exact same thing. Is that it's it's a nice thought, but when I buy something, I like to have it, and I like to know that I can listen to it here. I can listen to it in my uncle's farm in a shack in the middle of nowhere where there's no such thing as the internet while I'm hiking. I would like to be able to listen to my music. I don't want to have to authenticate against the internet because not everywhere in the world has the internet. Well, that's true. And even when you do have the internet, it doesn't mean it's going to be there all the time. And if everything is tied to authenticating against the internet or somehow knowing that you are allowed to listen to it, uh, based on a subscription, which would involve some sort of authenticating DRM, then, yeah, it means that I can't listen to what I've paid for when I want to on my terms. And I like to be able to listen to my music on my terms, not on somebody else's terms. <laughs> well, yeah, although I guess uh, in a subscription model, the, the one upside is that you it's pretty much, an, while you're paying your subs, it's pretty much an all-you-can-eat system. So yeah. you might venture out a little bit more, discover more music, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, although having said that, that's not necessarily going to benefit the artist. It might benefit you and your enjoyment, but it may not benefit the artist because exactly. they're still getting the same $20 a month fee or whatever it is. Yep, they're still getting the same royalty and depending on how the subscription works or what you what you pay they're possibly getting even less because nobody's going to pay a $500 a month subscription fee for an all you can eat to the iTunes music store and so you would be paying something relatively reasonable per month um, but then if you did branch out and listen to you know dozens and dozens of different artists how are you going to how are they going to know which of those artists deserves to get royalties how are they going to divvy up that monthly fee it yeah it, it seems like a lot to uh, a lot of um, a lot of thinking has to go around how they're going to do that but it also means that yeah it's it's good in that or you can eat sort of thing and you can go out and taste and I like that idea and that's good but I know that if I like a song I want to have that song and I want to be able to listen to that song whenever wherever I choose I do also like to listen to random music to see if I like it and venture out there and the subscription model may work to give people that taste, expose them to more music. 
but it still falls back to the fact that when I want to listen to my Foo Fighters, I want to know that my Foo Fighters will always be there for me. Fair enough. And you're wearing the, the sweatshirt that says so. Indeed. Fair enough too. And I'll tell you what, I know just going back to what you said though about how do, will they divvy up the royalties and know, you know who deserves what and how to carve it up. If you're Sony, what you do is you put a rootkit on the customer's computer <laughs> and it sends back all the data. Indeed. <laughs> That's what you do. <laughs> Alrighty, on to our one New Zealand story then uh, to wrap this uh, episode up. Telstra Clear, this is actually quite a big story really. Yeah, it's a big story for us. It is. Telstra Clear has bailed from the copyright code talks. So remember that the, the all the ISPs were put together to come up with a code of practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, m- meanwhile, Section 92A of the Copyright Act was put on hold uh, until this the, the new code of practice is... Uh, developed well Telstra Clear have basically walked out so what are they what does it mean by them walking out what it means is basically it cannot happen they cannot come to a consensus they cannot develop a code of conduct because the code of conduct must have either everybody saying yes we will support the code of conduct or most people saying yes and the rest of them abstaining but the instant one of that group says no it's gone. But is that really saying no, or is it just saying, well, um, we'll sit on the fence for now, but we're not, we're too busy? No, it's really saying no. Because if you look at some of the quotes that have come from uh, Telstra Clear, uh, one of the quotes is, it is not our role to make bad legislation work. The industry had no input into Section 92A. The draft code is bad for our customers. Customers and businesses have spoken via blogs and petitions and also directly to us. We have listened and we have agreed. Yep, so you're right. They are They are saying no. They are saying, saying no. No, we're not having it. Well, fair enough too. Uh, no, indeed. <laughs> I, I wholeheartedly support them. They, yep, they've they've got my vote. So it'll be interesting to see what happens at the end of the month out of this one. Indeed. March 27th will be an interesting time. Will be. We'll, we'll report on that on the podcast following that. Alrighty. So, Brett, there were no other stories, were there? No, no. Right. Well, that's pretty much it. Uh, I'd like to thank you, Brett, for hosting this with me. Always a pleasure. And thank you to our audience for joining us. That pretty much wraps up another episode of The Boys of Tech. Thank you very much for joining us. See you again next week. Take care. Ciao.